At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. So good to be able to worship together, to sing to our God. We are in 1 John chapter 2. As you're going there, just a couple of reminders for us. Um, If we could um, just not linger in the lobby after the service, uh, it's just so important for us to be able to continue having our services uh, safely. So just... You know, please take the fellowship outside and invite people into your home if you're comfortable with that, to have lunch and so forth. Um, So important. Also, um, just wanted to uh, share that if you look in your bulletin, you know, the giving in the church was just fantastic. It was amazing in the month of December. So thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Not only did we come up from being under, but we are ahead, which is important because as I've been sharing with you, we have not uh, fully grown into our budget just yet. I think we're making our way there. Uh, so it's good to start with a little bit of a surplus so that, because uh, I'm sure there will be some, well, I think there will be some weeks that might be lower. Also, if you look at an insert that you might have received with your bulletin, or if not, there's one in the lobby, you could pick it up, uh, about our critical needs fund. This is a fund that we began when COVID hit to be able to help our community. And we just give you a number of the highlights of the things we've been able to do for our community. Please read that because it'll be encouraging to you. Uh, Also, we're doing a marriage tune-up. It's a three-week workshop and uh, just a correction that uh, the last class will be Monday, February 8th. Last week, it said Sunday, February 7th, but that's super bold night that was intentional to test the guy, see what they really cared about. Uh, I'm, but they revolted. No, I'm kidding. That was an oversight. So now we've made it Monday, February 8th. They're all at 8.30 p.m. They're all on Zoom. And uh, we're going to be talking about five lives we believe in marriage. We're going to talk about roles of husband and wife and the path to joy. We're going to talk about handling life stressors and remaining friends. So you can go to our um, events page to sign up. Many of you have already signed up. Um, This is really not just for young marriages. This is for everyone. If your marriage is perfect, it's not for you, but everybody else is invited, okay? And then uh, finally, you guys know that um, this last week was a tumultuous week for our nation. And I trust that as we've been talking about being in prayer and fasting, that you've been doing these things for for our nation. And um, so we're going to pray in a minute But just to remind us that we're called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. That we're called to love everyone, believers and unbelievers. Um, That we are called to, to be slow to speak and slow to become angry and quick to listen. And I think above all, we're called to to hope in God and in uh, in God's kingdom and uh, and in His will. And so just keep these things in mind. I think it's so important. You know, as a church family, we are um, praying throughout the month of January, but especially next week, the week that begins next Sunday. And so, um, and so just, I just want to uh, commend this to you so that you really make this a priority. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this world will pass away, but not your word, not your will, not your kingdom. Lord, I pray for peace 
for our nation. Father, I pray that you be merciful to us. Father, help us identify so strongly with our King, Jesus Christ, that we are unshakable in turmoil and able to love everyone, especially those whose words and actions we don't understand. Father, we're here because we're starving and we need your word. It's our food. It's air to our lungs. It's a light to our path. And so we pray now that you would feed us by means of it. Lord, give us the humility we need, the spiritual understanding to be able to grasp what you have for us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of the Lord. We continue our series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again. 2020 was a year of survival, and when you're trying to survive, you might forget to love. Now, as we study 1 John and different passages from 1 John, we're supplementing this study through what we're doing in our live groups, which is we're looking at this little book called Place for a Purpose. Uh, together, we're thinking about learning to love our next-door neighbors. You know, I love the discussion we had in our group this past uh, week on that book. So good. But you know, the, the most radical things we do can happen right from where we are. You don't have to get on an airplane somewhere. You know, we just need to, to care and to, to be open, to open our hearts to the people that God has placed around us and be sensitive to the leading of God's Spirit. So... This is what we are studying together, learning to open up our hearts to others. You know, when you're walking with God, he will constantly place in your heart new thoughts, new words, new works to magnify the name of Jesus. And it's exciting when he does this. And so ask yourself that question. What new thoughts, words, or works is God placing in my heart that are aligned with his will. Now, as your pastor, I want to share with you briefly two works that the Lord has been placing on my heart uh, that I'm very excited about. The first one is my next book, which comes out this Friday. It's called Big Themes of the Bible, Grasping the Heart of Jesus' Message. And unlike my first book, which was a, an edited version of my PhD dissertation, and therefore it had a very specialized audience, this book is written for everyone. 
everyone. You know, the book belongs in a series that aims at training uh, people in the church, deacons, lay elders, live group leaders, young Christians, and giving them solid theological, biblical, and practical knowledge with the goal of maturing the Christian church. And so the series aims at bringing seminary-level education to everyone in the church. Now, the title of my book speaks for itself. I wrote on some of the big themes in the Bible. There are many of them, so there's, there's more than I could write about, but I wrote on creation, forgiveness, people, presence, yoke, and healing uh, in an effort to give people a sense of the, for the whole of Scripture. You know, as I wrote in the book's introduction, my goal is to simplify and to whet your appetite. The Bible is bulky. To many, it feels uninviting, not unlike Tolstoy's War and Peace. Yet scripture's many details and chapters become delightful once we grasp the heart of Jesus' message. So again, it comes out this Friday. Now, the second work that I want to mention to you for your prayers is a ministry that Anna and I are very excited about. It's, uh, we're going to do it together. It's not... Um, it's not going to be ready for another three months, and, um, but it's something we've been passionate about our whole marriage. We're, we're calling it preparing for baby number one, and we want to work with married couples that are transitioning to parenthood. You know, this transition to parenthood is one of the biggest hurricanes that marriages go through. I was talking to someone after the first service, and you know, they were saying just how when they became parents, everything flipped. Just everything flipped for them, kind of like overnight. And so um, the statistics are not encouraging. 68% of couples that become parents register a higher degree of marital dissatisfaction by the time baby number one turns one. That's not good. 16% of them remain about the same and only 16% get better. Those numbers are not acceptable to us. And so we want to work with married couples and help them protect their marriage and deepen their friendship as they become parents. These things are things that I'm doing not directly related to Woodside, but definitely related to kingdom work. And I mentioned them to you because every Christian should marry their skills and their passion to magnify the name of Christ. You need to do this. It's going to look different for you and for me, but all of us, there's a lot of skill in this room, and we need, as we mature in our walk with the Lord, we should be asking God to put desires in us that align, that conform to His will. It's actually what we see in the passage today, but boy, is it a battle. And so let's dive right in. First, embrace who you are in Jesus. We said a number of things about John in his first letter last week. John speaks to us as if we were deaf or blind. He says the same things again and again with slight variations. Just in case we missed it the first time, we may catch it the second or third time. And we clearly see that today. John is writing toward the end of the first century. By church history and tradition, we believe that John is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John and these three letters and the book of Revelation. So he gave us quite a bit of our New Testament. For over five decades, John has been following Jesus, laboring in building and sustaining the young churches. And you can hear his pastor's heart, his seasoned discernment and wisdom, his razor-sharp discernment. You know, there are, his writings are a treasure. 
Because John's writings are the latest canonical writings, meaning the, the last writings that we have uh, in Scripture uh, as far as uh, time period. Uh, and, uh, and so by the time he's writing, a lot of things have gone down in the churches. You know, I mean, just think of all that happens in our culture in the span of 50 years. You know, from Sony's Walkman to Apple's AirPods. From the Beatles to BTS. You know, I know Galen loves BTS. No, I don't know if he does. But, um, but you know, it's uh, a lot of things happen when we are, you know, just in a little bit of time. And so when John is writing, the first generation of Christians has died. Most, of the, most likely, all the other apostles are gone. Paul and Peter have been dead for 25, 30 years. And there's been all kinds of false teachings coming into the church. So false teachers and false teachings have attempted to come in and out of the church like wolves among sheep. Jesus had warned about this. And so John writes to clarify the true gospel and clarify true discipleship. What is it that Christians are to believe and what will our life look like in light of that belief? Because there were people making all kinds of claims. I know him, I'm in the light, I'm abiding in Christ. And John writes and says, prove it. Prove it by your life. Prove it by your confession. So that was last week. Today in this next passage, John continues to define for us our Christian identity as the family of God. And there are some foundational things that he hits on. Look at verse 12 one more time. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John addresses the churches, uh, the people in the church in these three categories of Little children, fathers, and young men. In other parts of the letter, he calls the whole church children or little children. But clearly, he's trying to address a spectrum from within the congregation. Those who are young in the faith, those who are maturing, and those who are seasoned in the faith. And so he addresses the three groups twice with some variations in the message. But it's very important for us to get that even though he has specific people, groups in mind, the whole church overhears the whole thing. So the message is for all of them. It's much like when I'm speaking to my younger children and I say, speak respectfully to your mother, but I know my older children are around and they're hearing the message. I want them to hear it and apply it as well. That's kind of what John is doing. He's addressing specific different parts of the church, but really it's for all of us. So all of these things should be true of all of us. So to the children in the faith, he says, I am writing to you because, verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And verse 13, you know the Father. The forgiveness of sin can never get old. You know, I wrote a whole chapter on that in the book because it's that important. One of the ways that Jesus sees humankind is as indebted to God. We're indebted to God. We have a debt to God that we cannot repay. And so God created, provided a way for it to be forgiven. Now, I know that this is a highly educated group right here. There's a lot of education here, which means that collectively we have a lot of experience with student loans. 
right? And either that or you guys are rich, you know? But, uh, you know, I mean, like, if you add it all up, I mean, it would be more than a small fortune. And I know that some of you uh, finished paying off your student loans not too long ago, and it's such a relief, right? It feels so good. Some of you are, like, uh, diligently working on that thing, but it's so good. But just imagine, imagine that you're not able to pay them back, as many people can't. And so, that debt begins to bury you and crush you and put greater distance between your reality and your dreams. And with interest, the debt just gets bigger and bigger. Apart from the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, people's debt to God gets only bigger and bigger. Why do you think people live such such horrible lives? Why do you think they use such foul and demeaning language, packing so much hatred and anger in it? Why do you think they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and all these destructive vices? Or they're unable to forgive those who offend them? Why do you think that people have so much and yet feel so empty? Because their sins have not been forgiven. Listen. The forgiveness of sins is not a fiction. This is not something that Jesus made up. Sin is the worst thing about the world. It's the biggest problem that the seven plus billion members of the human race have. COVID-19, it's a walk in the park. A walk in the park next to the problem of sin. There's an episode in the Gospels. It's registered in three of the Gospels where there's a group of friends that brought their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus to heal him. You know, if you've seen The Chosen, you know, they have a great episode about this very thing. They do it so well. But they bring, you know, their friend who's paralyzed, who can't walk to Christ. They want him to heal their friend. And Jesus sees the friend. He sees their, uh, his friend's faith. And he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, don't you love uh, that Jesus often doesn't do what we ask him for. You know, he, he does the better thing that we don't even know to ask for. And so when Jesus says to, to, the, to the man, your sins are forgiven, the people are at a loss. His friends are like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not what we brought him here. We want you to heal him. We want him walking. And Jesus' rivals are like, how dare he? How dare he say that? Only God can forgive sins. Now, Jesus, of course, is aware of all of this. And so he says to his rivals, Why do you entertain such thoughts in your heart? Which one is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now the answer is neither. These are things that only God can do. But you got to think, how could Jesus demonstrate that he had authority to forgive sins? How How could he demonstrate that he had authority over the spiritual and the material realms? Because he could say your sins are forgiven... But anyone technically can say that. It's something whose effect you can't really tell by looking at people. Like I, by looking at you, I don't know which of you have had your sins forgiven and which of you haven't. So anyone could say that. And so what Jesus does is he keeps talking to his rivals and he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he looks at the paralyzed man in his and he says, young man, I say to you, get up pick up your mat and go home. And the man stands up and walks out in the sight of them all. It's amazing. But you see what Jesus does there? 
What he's saying is, I have authority to forgive sins, the effect of which you cannot see. But I also have authority to heal the body, the effect of which you can see. And so I'm demonstrating to all of you that I do control both the spiritual and the material realms. In other words, you today can know that Jesus completely forgave your sins because he made dead people come to life. It's amazing. Church, nothing is greater than the forgiveness of sins. Nothing. We should long as a church and individually. We should long for more and more and more people to experience the forgiveness of sins. It's why we're studying this book placed for a purpose. So that we may learn to love our neighbors better. So they might, by the grace of God, come in and experience the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus has forgiven your sins recently, are you beside yourself? Are you amazed? You should be cartwheeling into this worship center every Sunday. Just blown away like, I'm free. I don't have this debt anymore. It's gone. And if it's been a while, 5, 10, 20, 30 years since he's forgiven your sins, are you still amazed? Are you still amazed? Or is it old hat? Are you like, yeah, yeah, he forgave my sins, but he hasn't given me the wife, the job, the financial stability I want. What? What? That would be like saying to a surgical team that does open heart surgery on you to save your life. Yeah, yeah, you saved my life, but you shaved more of my chest than I would have lied you to. What? Like, this doesn't make sense. Listen, you know what a good exercise for us, for you would be later today? Go home and write down a list. Just take out a piece of paper and write down a list of all your biggest problems. Just write them down. Don't leave anything out. Financial debt. Relationships that didn't work out. Dreams deferred. Health issues. Family strife. Just make the list. Don't leave anything out. And after you make that list, go back to the top and write in big letters, all my sin. And then start writing that out. Just as far back as you can go, as much as you can remember. And then if you're a Christian, take a big red pen and cross it out. It's gone. It should help put in perspective the rest of your problems. And if you've never given your life to Christ, if you don't know if your sins, that big boulder of dead has been lifted and thrown into the abyss for you, then my hope is that sin, the sin in you would become crushing to you. That it would lead you to despair, to the end of yourself, so that hopefully in humility you would come to Christ for forgiveness. He'll give it to you. But you must humble yourself and confess it and turn from it. The forgiveness of sins can never get old. Next, John writes to the fathers, to those seasoned in the faith. John says twice, I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. That's in verses 13 and 14. Now the reference is most likely to Jesus. No one ever debated that God had been from the beginning, God the Father. But Jesus, to say that this man who had lived a few decades before, who had died this criminal's death, 
that he was from the beginning, eternal, that was an important statement. You see, as you mature in the Lord, I've seen in myself, I've found in myself and seen in other people that you, you start having this, this solid perspective, this understanding of permanence. You're tossed back and forth less, much less by the things of the world. And it's amazing. And, and, and if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I hope you're able to resonate with that and say, yes, I'm, I'm just more firmly planted now, we need to ask why. Why is that? Why that sense of permanence and uh, solidity? Because nothing around us is more permanent or more stable. As a matter of fact, everything around us culture-wise is more unstable. So from where does this, this settled peace come from? And the answer is from an experience, from a deepening experience of Jesus as the one who has been from the beginning. Nothing surprises him. Nothing precedes him. Nothing comes after him. Everything comes from him, through him, and to him. Nothing in time or history can touch him. And so if your life feels kind of airy, kind of light, easily thrown into turmoil, you need to spend more time with the one who has been from the beginning. Less on Instagram more with the eternal man, stable, permanent. He's unshakable, and so are you in him. Next, finally, John writes to the young men. And here he highlights the vigor of youth, but also the need for young people to conquer desire. You know, I'm uh, just so proud of our young men. Last week we talked about the men signing up to uh, take on the overnight shift for the, for the warming center, and you guys did it. And not a few women also did it. Uh, so thank you for that. But there's a strength that, that, that John is addressing here in those who are young. He says, I write to you, verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We have strength to overcome the evil one and everything he throws at us because of the word. When we have the word of God in us. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the way that the victory of Jesus on the cross for us becomes my reality, the reality that I embrace, that I'm defined by, is by my word of God intake. Now, when I read about bodybuilders, and it's not like I have a feed reading about bodybuilders all the time, you know, but, but when I have, you know, when I've read about them, the thing that always blows me away is the ridiculous amount of food they eat. Have you read about this? They eat like six times a day, uh, like 4,000 calories a day, like almost twice as much as most of us eat. And it's not donuts they're eating. I mean, they eat steak and fish and eggs and more eggs and good carbs and protein shakes. I mean, and it shows, right? It shows. It's like, here's what they eat. Here's how they work it into their system by going to the gym. And here's what they look like. I'm not saying we like what they look like. I'm just saying it shows. 
that kind of thing also shows when it comes to us spiritually. Our spiritual vigor or lack thereof shows. Here's how much we are in the Word of God. Here's how we work it into our system through prayer and reflection and the church assembly and so on. And here's what we look like, spiritually speaking. Are you malnourished? Do you lack vigor, spiritual vigor to conquer? Do not see yourself as a weakling, as someone who, that sin must have you or that you can't help it. No, feed on God's word and explode in strength. You'll feel strength. You know, one of the things I love just being in a congregation for a while is that you start knowing people and there are so many people that have come in here either knowing nothing, they're dead spiritually or very, very weak, like barely like... I'm not sure this person has really heard the gospel, but that's okay, right? This is for all of us or people who are more mature when they come in. But what I love watching is as time starts going on and they are just feasting on the word of God, you just start seeing them grow and change and become stronger and their values change and their vices start leaving and just their, their new vision for the world expands. It's amazing who they see themselves as. Why God has them here in the world. It all changes. The word does that. There's a strength in the church. And I've been talking about us growing into a spiritual maturity that I do believe God expects from us. Because he puts, he's put many deposits in us. He's been depositing and depositing and depositing. And he wants to make withdrawals. Can God make withdrawals from you? Can he call you to things and you say, absolutely, I am there. Or do you see yourself as a weakling? It's kind of like, mm, not much strength. We're to summarize this whole section. Whether you're young in the faith or maturing or seasoned as a Christian, these are traits that we're all to exhibit. Amazement that our sins have been forgiven. Strength to conquer the evil one. And a deepening understanding that we are unshakable because we know him who has been from the beginning. This is what John is saying to us. He is reminding us. He is reinforcing for us our identity as the family of God. And so embrace it. And as you embrace it, reject what the world has to offer. And that's our final point. Reject what the world has to offer. Look at verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, now there are two loves here that John describes that are antithetical to one another the love of the world and the love of God. Now, when John says, do not love the world, he doesn't have in mind creation as such. John's not saying, don't love food, don't love people, don't love the good things in the world like medicine and technology and learning and music. That's not what he has in mind. These are good things, good gifts from God that can actually enhance our enjoyment and worship of God. When John says, do not love the world, he has in mind the system of opposition to God that corrupts everything about the world. He's thinking about the world covered by sin. And John is saying, don't love that. It's kind of like when people say, I hate politics. People say, I hate politics. But at least until recently, what people generally had in mind when they said, I hate politics, they, they didn't mean that they hated when well-educated civil servants engage in vigorous and 
thoughtful discussion for the purpose of enacting good and just laws for the good of society. That's not what they mean. When people say, I hate politics, what they mean is, I hate the attacks. I hate the backstabbing and the gossip and the backbiting and the self-righteous postures. I hate, I hate the boasting. All which sadly become attached to the process. And you see what John is saying is do not love the world because he knows that because of humanity's rebellion against God and the curse of sin, that even the good things in the world become corrupted and corrupting. He explains this farther in the next verse, verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he talks about the desires of the flesh. This refers to our appetites. Now, a desire is neither good nor bad, or a desire could be good or bad, but a desire of the flesh is a desire that is not from God or ruled by God. And so John is talking to us about the desires of the flesh, and then he farther defines them by greed and pride, okay? So he's given us this category of the desires of the flesh, and then he speaks to us about the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, the desires of the eyes, think about this. It's amazing how much coveting comes into our soul through the eyes. Just think about it. I mean, you can think of David in the Old, Old Testament. You know, Scripture says that when David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof and he finds her beautiful, a series of regrettable actions unfold. He sees her, he sends for her, he sleeps with her, he tries to cover it up, and eventually he has her husband killed. All actions that unraveled his family until he died. But it all started with the eyes. It all started with fixating his eyes on something. Don't underestimate what, what you put before your eyes does to your soul. You may think, oh, I just love Instagram. Oh, this is, your, this is just a silly YouTube video. Listen, death to the soul comes through the eyes. And then he talks about the pride of life. Now, the pride of life refers to the boastings that we make in life, that make us feel significant. So see how this works. The desires of the eyes refer to what we crave, when we crave more and more. And the pride of life refers to the boasting that we do about the things that we crave. And the cycle goes on. So just think about your own life, right? We fix our eyes on something, whatever that may be. And we want it. We covet it. We want, and so once we go after it and we get it, then it makes us feel significant and we boast about it. But it only lasts for a season. It wears off. And so we set our sights on something new and we go after that thing and we get there and it makes us feel significant. And so we boast about it. And the cycle never ends. John says it's a losing game because the world and the things of the world are passing away. He says, but those who do the will of God remain forever. And so don't give your love to the world. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. 
And so let me, let me get to this because where, where we can go with this, where we can be tempted to go with this, I've, I've struggled with this throughout my Christian walk and I've seen many people struggle with it, is that we can go to a place where we say this. Well, the desires of the flesh are everywhere, all around me and within me. And so I'm gonna work on not wanting anything. I'm gonna focus on low desire, low ambition. But that's the Buddhist way. That's not the Christian way. In Buddhist thought, you want the absence of desire so that you will not suffer. So you'll not encounter suffering. But that is not where the Christian gospel takes us. Where the Christian gospel takes us, where John takes us here, is not to an absence of desire, but rather to the will of God. He says, be done with the world and the things of the world, the desires of the world, but rather the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now think about this. What's the will of God? The will of God is what God desires, right? We don't talk about God in that language, but that's what it is. God's will is what God desires the most. So where John is taking us is for our desires to become God's desires, for what we want to be fully aligned with who God is. And here's where we go back to the beginning, because we talked about with Christian maturity, as we grow up in the faith, we should have more and more desires that align with the will of God. A lot of us start defining our Christian faith negatively by the things that we don't do. I don't curse anymore. I don't lie. I don't kill. I don't lust. I don't this. Maturity in the Lord means that we do more, that we want more, but it's for him and it's been purified by him. And boy, is this tricky because just because you put the word Christian in front of an endeavor doesn't make it holy. A Christian ministry, a Christian business could be just as self-seeking as anything else. But again, the solution is not for us to bury our heads in the sand and say, I'm just going to love my family and live my life. The mafia does that. There's nothing particularly uh, Christian or spiritual about that. No, the answer is ask the Lord to sanctify you and everything about you. Ask him to give you skills and passions that align with his will. The Christian answer to selfish ambition is not no ambition. Rather, it's to cultivate godly ambition. Our king claims every inch of the universe. So what new thoughts, what new words, what new works is he putting in your heart that align with his will? Think about that. Now, let me leave you with this. I said last week that for any one of you who calls this their church family, that I'm asking us to fast and to pray in the month of January so that God, in his good timing and wisdom, would bring back together this entire church body, and we trust him with that. Today, I want to talk to you about our live groups. And I want to say three things about them. You know, our live groups are our church in bite size. 10, 15, 20 people that help us remain faithful in the faith and be about the mission of Jesus. So let me say three things about this. First, if you're in a group, give it your all. If you're in a group, give it your all. Do not give it crumbs. Ask yourself this question. If Jesus was leading your group, how involved would you be? Like really, think about it. 
Like if he's really, like he's the one leading. He's the one who's going to lead the discussion. He's the one putting the, dessert, the, the refreshments together or whatever. How involved would you be? Because here's the thing. He is. He's the one leading everything that we do for his glory. It's him. It's not us. You don't come to church for me or for the band or for people. You come to church for him. It's all him. So how involved would you be? 2020 was a rough, rough year. You know, one of the highlights for me, hands down, was our group. Just our group. So amazing. It was so sweet. You know, our group, when everything hit, we started meeting more often on Zoom, and everybody was there every week until the end. It was amazing. It's not like they started strong and then they taper off. They stayed the whole time. You know, our group meets on Thursdays, and so we'd meet Thursdays at 6 p.m., and Sure enough, everybody would be there, just all their faces, and it was so wonderful. And we had two of the women in the group who were pregnant. And so they were pregnant like five, six months ago, so they were ready to give birth. And they gave birth on a Thursday, both of them, like a month apart. And guess what? That night, they were at a group on Zoom to show us the babies and say hi. I'm not joking. They didn't stay the whole time. You know, I mean, come on. They just gave birth. But they were there. Isn't that wild? It's like, cut the cord. I got to be on Zoom with my group. (laughs) Amazing. I'm not kidding. And here's the thing. Those 20 minutes that each stayed were some of my, the most precious minutes out of the 500,000 minutes in all of last year because of what it said. What it said was, God's people are our people. You know, when everything started opening up again and we didn't know what was safe or what wasn't, man, everybody was there like, this family of faith matters to us. Let's figure it out. And we had fits and starts. We would try one thing. It didn't work. We had to shut this down. Let's try that. But everyone was there. When a need comes up, everybody's like, what do we need to do? It's amazing. Now, here's the thing. Ann and I have led a group since the whole time we've been here pretty much and we've stumbled we've stumbled people have come and gone you can ask them about our missteps but here's the thing we don't give up we don't give up because we believe that expressing expressing our love tangibly to the family of God is what it means to be a Christian so if you're in a group, give it your all. Do not give it crumbs. It's so discouraging to the group leaders when you don't show up or when you're there acting like this is the last thing you wish you had to do. Listen, it's the body of Christ we're talking about. It's holy ground we're walking on. So give it your all. Now, if you're not in a group, join one. Join one. You saw how John refers to the church as little children and fathers and young people. It's his way of reminding us that this is the family of God. But I know that for many of you, that part of the faith has not clicked, that we're a family. It hasn't clicked. Maybe you see the church as a weekly service or a religious tradition or a childhood relic, but you don't see it as being known full transparency, your quirks and your glory. You don't see it as holding the hand of one of Jesus' brothers and sisters as they go through the biggest losses of their lives. You don't see it as praying together for the advancement of the gospel and then working through the disappointment of flat rejection. You don't see it as overcoming sin together. Listen, groups are messy. They're messy because people are messy. I was talking to one of you 
couple of months ago. And this brother was saying, oh man, I don't know if I want to put one more hour into my group. These people are knuckleheads. And I'm like, yeah, because you're a knucklehead. That's why. That's who we are as people. Do you, have you ever lived in the context of a family? Do you know what life in a family is like? Listen, I love my family. My family delights and depresses me all within five minutes. I'm not kidding. If you've been in a family, you know what I'm talking about. But that's what God has given us because we all are sinners. It's messy to do this thing. But let me tell you, you will not mature in the faith in isolation. I don't even know if you'll make it to the end in isolation. And so my plea to you is come in, be known, join the family, join a group, join hands with us. We need you and you need us. And finally, pray. Please pray for our group leaders. Pray for our group leaders. Pray for their assistance. Pray for those who lead all kinds of ministries in our church family. We're talking over a hundred people here. These individuals are amazing. The people that are the, the lifeblood of this church are amazing. You know many of them. Pray for them. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a, an extensive training of our leaders. We're calling them coaching circles, where for six months we're going to just dive deep into leadership, into discipleship, into what it means to follow Christ. And we're so excited about this. We've never done anything like this. But now that Lauren and Anna are on staff, we're able to do more for our group leaders. And I'm so excited about this. You know, the, the ones that we don't get to this time around, we'll do it in the latter half of the year. But just pray. Because I'm so excited that we're able to pour more into our leaders. Give them more tools. Help them grow. Build into their discipleship and their joy in Christ. And building their relational circle. Because I know one thing. The battle for our faith will only get more intense. And we intend for our spiritual fire to become not a flickering candle, but rather a roaring flame, a flame that grows and attracts more and more people out of the darkness as Jesus summons to himself those who are his. So be done with your love affair with the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God rejects the love the world embraces. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being so good to us. God, you are so good. You love us so deeply. You are so wonderful, Lord. Thank you for the light of your word. Father, thank you for forgiving our sins by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that this boulder of our debt that we could not pay back, you provided a way to do so through your son. And so now we are free eternally free. Father, I pray that you would give us strength, that as a church family, we would become stronger and stronger. God, that as we intake your word and work it into our system through our life groups, through reflection, through prayer, through this weekly assembly, Father, that we would grow and feel ourselves growing in strength. Father, that sin that has been conquering us would be conquered by us, that it would be gone that we would not see ourselves as weaklings and that we would not seek strength in the wrong sources. 
seeking to prop ourselves up by the things of this world, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. No, God, I pray that our strength would fully and only come from your word, which is holy and eternal. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would all be maturing in the faith and having a deeper sense of knowing the one who's been from the beginning, that it would give us a solidity, a permanence that nothing in this world can shake. Thank you, dear God. Let us be done. Let us be done with our love affair of the world. Let us make that list with all the things that consume our minds, then on top of it, write out our sin and then cross it out symbolically, just reminding ourselves that it is finished. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this for us. We love you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let us rise up and sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.